We return now to uh, God's word as we work through Romans chapter seven, and I invite you to open back up to that passage as we think about um, this amazing, amazing chapter that Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans. The passage we have uh, really focuses on the issue of failure, doesn't it? Failure to do the right thing. One of my earliest recollections of failure comes from when I was a boy, when I was in my early childhood, I had a school assignment to read a book and write a book review on that book for the summer. So they gave us the task and expected us to read this book over the summer and come back with a a book report written on it. And I can't quite recall what the book was about. It was something to do with American history, some figure in American history, but I can't remember who it was because I didn't read the book. I had sat on my shelf and I looked at it periodically through the summer and glanced at it and thought, I'll get to that tomorrow until the end of summer came and I hadn't read a page of it and I had to go confess to my dad Dad, I haven't read a single page of this book and I need to write a book report on it within the next week. And this was a big moment for me because uh, I've mentioned it before, my family, they're big on books and my dad loves books. And so this was a big moment for me to confess that I had procrastinated all summer and I just couldn't bring myself to read one book. And I thought, what a failure I am. And I'm reminded of that story because in chapter seven, we hear someone talking about their inability to know what they ought to do. They know the right thing to do and they simply can't bring themselves to do it. And it goes far deeper than school assignments. It goes far deeper than that. It gets right down to the Christian life. Many of us this morning, we know the right thing to do. And we can't bring ourselves to do it. We think, I'll get to that tomorrow. That can wait till tomorrow. I'll get to that when I feel like it, when there's not as much interesting things going on in my life. What does the Bible say about failure in the Christian life? The last time we looked about looked at Romans was a few weeks back, and we looked at chapter six. And chapter six was very clear in telling us that Christians are dead to sin. Remember that? You are dead to sin if you're in Christ. And that means that you have a new master. You have a new Lord. Christ is your Lord. Sin is not your Lord. Christ is your master. Sin is not your master, and you are dead to that old life. You have been moved out of the realm and the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And yet, most of us, if we were honest with ourselves, when we look in the mirror, we would say, why doesn't my life look like what I've been hearing in chapter 6? Why does my life look more like chapter seven, knowing the right thing to do and simply being unable to do it? So all of this makes us think, what do we do about failure in our lives? Does our failure to do the right thing mean that we are experiencing God's judgment? 
or that we're fake Christians, or that God will remove his Holy Spirit from us. These are the sorts of questions that many Christians ponder at night, and it keeps them up and deprives them of sleep. And many of these questions are answered for us by the Apostle Paul here in chapter 7. And Paul goes into very personal terms about what failure means in the Christian life. And Paul says several things. And the first thing he says about failure is that our failure is universal. That's the first thing that Paul says about failure. He says failure in the Christian life is universal. It's not just one or two of you that struggle with failure. It is a universal issue that all of us, all humanity will deal with. Look at what he says here in verse 9. He says he's getting along okay. He's getting along all right until he comes into contact with God's holy law. He says, verse 9, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. He's getting along okay. He's getting along all right until he understands and hears God's holy law, something from the Mosaic law, something from the Ten Commandments, something from Scripture. He hears about God's law, and rather than leading to obedience, it leads to a sort of death. And he uses just one example to illustrate this. Verse 7, he uses the illustration of do not Covet. The law do not covet. As soon as he came to understand what it means to covet, rather than teaching him to avoid coveting, it just created in him the desire to covet even more. I remember I had a discussion exactly like this with my daughter Fiona. It's a couple of years ago. She's six now. This must have been when she was three, maybe. I can't remember. But I had to have a discussion with her about what lying is. I think maybe a lie occurred and a lie needed to be addressed. And so I had to explain what lying is. I said, this is what lying is and you should not do it. And I remember that being a terrifying conversation for me, not for her. For her, it was very exciting. For me, it was terrible. It was awful because I realized that a light bulb went on. She began to realize that lying is something she can do. Oh, the ways I can lie. It probably had never occurred to her until I explained it to her. Oh, I can tell daddy something that's not true? Oh, the possibilities. <laughs> and my life has never been the same. So maybe I shouldn't have told her, right? Maybe I should have just kept quiet and not tell her what lying is. Of course I can't do that. that. Of course you cannot let a child grow up without knowing what lying is. You have to tell them. You have to tell them because what a tortuous existence that would be if your parents never told you the difference between right and wrong and what lying is and all the many other things about how life works. I can't not tell her. And what that means is that the law is not the problem right? The law is not the problem. That's what he means in verse 13. Did that which is good, the law, 
God's righteous standard, did that which is good then become death to me? Is it God's fault for having a high standard? No, 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 no. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. What he's saying is that the law is necessary. God's righteous standard is absolutely necessary. Why? So that sin can be shown to be sin. So that it can be identified for what it is. Why do you need to do that? How can you fix a problem until you've identified it? Calling sin what it is is the first step in fixing the problem and getting rid of it. God's law is not the problem. God's standard is not the problem. We need that standard to show us what's really going on inside. And inside is where the problem is. Inside, it's our flesh. It's our flesh. The weakness of our flesh is that when it comes into contact with God's law, it rebels. And notice how Paul describes this pattern that plays itself out over and over again in Scripture. It's not just true for Paul that he was once alive apart from the law, and then when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and he died. That's also true for Adam and Eve, isn't it? They were both in the garden, alive, apart from law, doing okay, getting along all right, until that commandment came, do not eat of the fruit of the tree. And as soon as that commandment came, it created in them the desire to break that law. And as soon as they did, they died. On the day you eat of this, you will surely die. And so some scholars and commentators think, Paul is actually referencing here back to the garden. He's referencing Adam and Eve. And some other scholars say, well, wait a minute. This actually sounds also a little bit like the nation of Israel. They too were once alive apart from the law. They were in Egypt, redeemed out of Egypt, out of slavery, in the Exodus, brought into the wilderness, and they were alive. And then the law came. They came to Mount Sinai, where they got the Ten Commandments. They got the Mosaic Law. And as soon as they got the Mosaic Law, they didn't begin to obey God. They started worshiping idols. And that law created with them the desire to rebel. Now, that sounds complicated, but it's actually quite simple. What's happening here is Paul is saying, our failure is universal. It's a pattern that has played itself out since the Garden of Eden, since the book of Exodus, even in Paul's life and even in your life and mine. When we come into contact with God's law, our fleshly instinct is not to obey, but to rebel. And so if you struggle with failure in your Christian life, the first thing I would say is you are in good company. You are in good company. Doesn't excuse you and me, but it does put it in perspective. The impression we get when we look at other people, when we listen to how they talk and we watch their social media is that they have it all together and they don't struggle like we do. But the truth is that this is a universal problem. 
The second thing Paul says from verse 14 on is not simply that our failure is universal, but also that our failure persists. And that's what he goes on to describe in verse 14 and following. Our failure persists even into the Christian life. And in this second half of the passage, we get a vivid picture of the struggle and the turmoil of how it feels to be unable to do God's will. You can get a sense of the frustration of somebody who knows the right thing but simply can't bring themselves to do it. In and of themselves, they do not have the resources, the ability, and the strength to overcome that failure. Now, it's interesting to hear Paul talk like this. And you wonder, how can Paul say such strong, use such strong language to describe feeling like he's sold as a slave to sin, that nothing good dwells in him? And now he's saying this not because he's an immature Christian. Paul isn't saying this because he's a, a bad Christian. He's saying this because he's actually quite a mature Christian. And the truth is that being a mature Christian is the ability to recognize how far, far, far we are from God's righteous standard. Even if you've been a Christian for a long, long time, maturity is the ability to see how far short you still fall from God's perfection. I mean, think about how you clean your house, right? When there's a big mess and you clean that up, looks a lot better, you're not right satisfied yet because you begin to notice a mess that that big mess was hiding, a smaller one. And then you clean that up and you think, oh, I'm good now until you notice that there was another mess that was hiding behind that one. And then you have to clean that one up until it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. You're becoming more and more aware of even the tiniest little imperfections. You didn't even notice them before until you started cleaning up the big problems. The more light, the more you see the imperfections. The more knowledge, the more awareness of God's law, the more we're able to sense even the slightest degree of sin. And that's what's going on here with Paul. He's not immature. He's a very mature Christian. But it's the mature Christian that can sense though even those minute blemishes and imperfections and feel so uncomfortable and guilty about them. But the point that he's making is not that the struggle is hopeless. It's simply that we don't have the resources in and of ourselves to overcome those failures. Notice how self-focused Paul is here. In me, in me, in me. He's focusing on himself. Why? He's making the point that he and we do not have in and of ourselves the resources to overcome our failure. And that's the exact opposite of what the world tells us today, isn't it? The world tells us today, you have everything you need within you to be strong and independent and successful and to make your dreams come true. You have everything you need. You're worth it. And you've got it all. And that's exactly the opposite of what Paul 
wants us to understand. In and of ourselves, we do not have the resources or the strength or the ability to overcome our failure. And this is why in verse 24, he has to ask, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Even Christians, day by day, we need to ask for God's deliverance. We need to be in a place where we're asking God to deliver us yet again because we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves because of this body of flesh. We might be Christians, but we still inhabit a body that is susceptible to weakness and failure. Our failure is universal. Our failure persists. But in chapter 8, we learn that our failure is not the end of the story. Our failure is not the end of the story. And that is true because God has not left us to ourselves. In and of ourselves, we don't have the resources to overcome our failure, but God has not left us to ourselves. And that is the great hope of the gospel. God knows that we are weak. God knows that we are frail. And so he has given us so many things to help us. Think about the many blessings and the resources that come from outside of us to help us. God has given us his word. He's given us his church, his people. He's given us his sacraments for spiritual health. He's given us a savior. He's given us the Holy Spirit. All of these things are outside of us that we must take hold of if we want to see victory. Now, it's really interesting to see verse 1, chapter 8. Cast your eyes one more time at verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is an amazing thing to say after just focusing on how much of a failure we are, isn't it? How can there be no condemnation when the human race is subject to failure? How is that possible? That's a bit of a paradox. Indeed, it is a paradox, but it's a paradox that brings us down to the heart of the gospel. What do I mean? Verse 3 explains to us how there can be no condemnation, even in spite of our failure. For what the law was powerless to do because of sinful flesh, excuse me, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. What was the law powerless to do? Raise us up out of our failure. The law could not do that. It could tell us what was wrong. It could show us, but it could not fix the problem. Why? Not because the law, but because of the weakness of our flesh. But in spite of that, in spite of that, God did what the law could never do. And he did it by sending his own son. Sending his own son who perfectly obeyed the law in our 
place. He perfectly obeyed the law in our place. And we had a penalty to pay because of the sin we have committed. Guess who paid that penalty? Jesus. He was sent as a sin offering. He lived a perfect life in our place. He paid the penalty in our place. Why? So that he could pour out, verse 4, the Holy Spirit to indwell us and enable us to walk in a way that would please him. Notice the three things Paul mentions that Christ did for us. Verse 2, he set us free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, he substituted himself in our place on the cross as a sacrifice. And verse 4, he poured out the Holy Spirit so that we might walk according to that Holy Spirit and thereby learn how to grow into the image and likeness of Jesus. That is the message of the gospel, that God did what we could not do. He paid our penalty, and now he pours out help and resources and blessings to draw us to himself. We must look out, outward, and reach out if we want to see victory. We have a tendency to be independent, don't we? We have a tendency to be independent. I have everything I need. I'm my own man. I can do it on my own. I don't need anyone's help. But what we're learning here is that that leads to failure because we don't have within us, in and of ourselves, what it takes to overcome our failure. But there is hope if we look outward to what God has provided. And that means that our failure is universal. It persists. But it is not the end of the story. It is not the end of the story because God has intervened to write a new ending to our story where he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And that means we can overcome sin. We can overcome sin and our failures if we take hold of what God has given. If we reach out and take hold of the resources God has given. There's so many different resources we could talk about, but the one main one that Paul talks about here is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit poured out on the day of Pentecost for all who believe in Jesus' name. And that same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now indwells those who believe in Jesus Christ and enables you and empowers you and strengthens you to obey God in a way that was not possible before. And so if we want to see victory, we must learn how to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We must develop obedience to the Holy Spirit. We must develop the ability to respond to the Holy Spirit. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that happens in an instant, and maybe not perfectly, but gradually, slowly, one day at a time, as God gives us the strength 
we must wake up to the fact that in our flesh, in and of ourselves, we are weak. But God has not left us that way. God has not left us to ourselves. And that is the message of the gospel. In addition to all the many blessings he pours out, he has given a substitute who perfectly obeyed the law, who paid our penalty and gave us the Holy Spirit. We must learn how to open up and reach out and take hold of what God has given. And if we do, we will grow. We will grow in holiness and make our way closer and closer to his will for our life. Let's pause now and pray that God would help us do that. Lord, we thank you for the many gifts you give us and we thank you for your word. And we pray that as your word comes to us, our hearts would be soft to hear it and to put it into practice. And we pray that we would learn the truth about ourselves and the truth about you and your son. And we pray that you would strengthen us to walk in a way that pleases you. We pray that we would not be discouraged as days go by and we still experience failure. But we pray that you would give us hope as we look to Jesus Christ, the one who paid our penalty and the one who fills us with strength for every new day. We pray in his name. Amen.